All right, we're going to start in Jeremiah this morning, Jeremiah 32. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah before the Babylonian army shows up and sacks the city and takes them all hostage. And that is happening as this story unfolds in chapter 32. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a walled city and all the um, Israelites are inside. The Babylonian army is encamped all the way around the, side, around the city. So we picture catapults and battering rams and they're piling dirt up against the outside of the wall to build a ramp to get to the top and the Israelite soldiers are shooting arrows and dumping boiling tar on down the side and throwing rocks and the Babylonians are camped around not letting anybody in or out so the people in the city are starving and there were at least hundreds of thousands if not nearly a million people in the Babylonian army so that's what's happening during this story and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard of the royal palace of Judah. He has been arrested multiple times by this Zedekiah, the king, because he prophesies the Babylonians are going to win this attack. You need to surrender. The Lord says, if you surrender to them, you will live. And if you fight them, you will die. And he's prophesied Zedekiah's death. Um, he's, Zedekiah does not like what Jeremiah is prophesying. So he's under arrest, possibly in shackles or a stock, the wooden bar that they'd put their feet in. And, but he is in the courtyard of the guard of the royal palace. So he's right in the heart of the city, under arrest. It's in a public place, though. People can come and go, and he's there in the stocks or chained to the wall or something. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shal Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. Because as near as relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. And then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. And I knew this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth. Anathoth is three miles from Jerusalem. So literally the Babylonian army of a half a million soldiers is camped in that field right now. The crops have been destroyed, the fruit trees have been chopped down, the wells have been poisoned, the houses have been burned. And his cousin says, hey, I got some land for sale if you want to buy it. Fire sale prices. Or this guy is like, we're under attack, I'm selling my land and I'm skipping town. And Jeremiah is under arrest, handcuffed or stalked or shackled or something in undergarment, and he wants him to buy it. It's just kind of humorous. So I bought the field, because the Lord told him to, at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out to him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch. That's Jeremiah's secretary, his scribe that writes down his prophecies. Baruch is through the entire book of Jeremiah. In the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. So, so they write out a new deed. Now the field belongs to Jeremiah. They get it. Uh, um, what's the word? The person with the stamp. 
The notary, yeah, it's notarized. The way they would do it, it has multiple public witnesses sign the deed that they, they saw the month transfer of money and that the sale was voluntary on both parts. And so it's notarized and everything. And then in the, presence of, in the presence of the people, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed and purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that it will last a long time. That was their uh, bank safe deposit box, I guess. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And I prayed to the Lord, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city? Because of the sword and famine and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. And what you said has happened, as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Jeremiah's like, what are you doing, God? The, the field's destroyed. There's no house there anymore. The orchards are cut down. The well is poisoned. And you're telling me to buy this field? When I'm locked up in the center of the city, surrounded by my own army and an enemy army, there's no way I can get to the field. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking this city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down along with the houses where the people provoked me to anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. This city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They and their kings and officials and their priests and prophets, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. I, they set up their abominable idols in the house that bears my name and defiled it. And they built high places to Baal to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it even enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. But I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. And I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought out this calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. And once more, fields will be bought in this land. So what God has Jeremiah do here is prophetic act to buy this field to prophetically declare there is a future yeah. for Judah. There is a future. His cousin is liquidating because he sees no future. He's going to take his money and run. But God tells Jeremiah, look past the current circumstances and live for the future. And when God wants us to live for the future, he will have us do things that make absolutely no 
sense in the current conditions. Jeremiah is under arrest. He's under guard. He's inside a city then that is full of his own army's soldiers that wouldn't let him escape. And then that city is surrounded by the enemy army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. The Bible says literally the number couldn't be counted. There's no way he's going to get to this farm, even though it's only three miles away. There's catapults and battering rams and ditches and, I mean, it's a full-on ancient world siege. And at the farm, the Babylonian army is camped there because an army of half a million or more is going to, uh, that's spread around the city in a ring, they're going to take up a fairly large swath of land because that's just the soldiers. And then there's all the slaves and and a lot of them had their families along this is this is a lot of people and they are camped around and they're living off the land of the people that they're attacking and there there is no there is <laughs> there is no hope but god says hey I, jeremiah i got an idea for you buy a farm Fire sale prices. Buy the farm because there is hope. There is hope. There is always hope. Steve Backlund, one of the senior leaders at Bethel, says there's no hopeless circumstances, just people who do not have hope. There are no hopeless circumstances, just people who don't have hope. He's correct. As much as oftentimes I have not wanted that to be true. I'm like, no, this time it's hopeless. And God is always like, no, it's just you being hopeless. By farm. There's always a future. There is always hope. So in 2023, I see a, a Babylonian army coming. In our economy in our military engagements, in our elections, in our illegal immigration, in the sleeper cells and the transgender mafia, we are under attack. And especially in the area of economy and war in the Middle East and our elections, I really think the next year is going to make us wish for the good old days of 2020. I think we're in for some, some pretty dramatic stuff. I don't make any predictions on what that might be, but our immediate future, to me, looks pretty difficult. Economically, the numbers are, are really not good. They're worse than 2008. And so what is the correct and rational response to the threats of our world, build a business. Invest your money, get married and make babies. In that order. <laughs> Only in that order. Plan for a future. That is the correct and rational response to the really big bad stuff staring us down. 
by a farm. The church should not be digging bunkers. We should be moving forward, sending people out, speaking up, building, increasing, spreading. American Christians dare not hunker down and wait for a rapture. We have to have vision and hope for a future or we will completely waste our lives thinking that there is no future, assuming there is no future. God very rarely uh, in Scripture talks to people about their present. He almost always talks to them about their future. And there's always hope. There's always vision. There's always change. So here's God coming to the man in all of Jerusalem, the man least likely and least able to go farm a field. And God tells him, hey, I want you to buy this. And he does. But you need to know that Jeremiah did not live to farm his field. The Babylonian army didn't sack Jerusalem in this attack. They actually miraculously pulled up and left for no explainable reason except what Jeremiah told the king would happen. But there was a moment where the pressure was off and people were free and they decided they would all run to Egypt. We're leaving Jerusalem, abandoning the city, and we're going to flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah says, no, no, do not flee to Egypt, flee to God. He's our defender, not Pharaoh. But because he's under arrest, they take him under arrest, kind of as a hostage, to Egypt. And he continues to prophesy that they should go back to Jerusalem and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, and they kill him. His own people kill him because of what the Lord tells him to say. He didn't live to farm his field. He didn't live to see the days that his own obedience is prophesying, which is hope and restoration. And again, fields and farms and houses will be bought and sold in this land. There will be life. There will be economy. There will be business. There will be people. He didn't live to see it. So Make plans for the future, even a future that's too far in the future for you to live to see. We ought to be living for kids and grandkids. All the grandparents understand that. Invest in a future that you will not see yourself. Invest with hope. Because there is no hopeless circumstance. Just people without hope. We're going to go to Genesis 26. This is the story of Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 26 says a severe famine now struck the land as had happened before in Abraham's time. Severe famine, a drastic drought in a cold climate that's already extremely dry and they can only farm by irrigation. Now there's a severe famine, a severe drought. So Isaac moved to Gerar where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. That is actually in what is now called the Gaza Strip where Hamas is fighting Israel from. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Everybody say, do as I tell you. Do as I tell you. There you go. There's the word of the Lord for this morning. Live here as a foreigner in the land and I will bless you, be with you and bless you. When Isaac then planted his crops that year, 
Isaac planted crops during a severe famine, a severe drought. He harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted. For the Lord blessed him. So not only does it not make sense that he planted crops at all when there's a drought, if there's no water, why are you planting crops? You're wasting the seed that you could be eating as food. But then he gets a hundred times harvest. That is unheard of in grain crops. If you plant a corn kernel, like my dad and brother in Missouri that are corn farmers, a corn kernel grows into about 400 kernels on a 200 to 400 on an ear of corn. They're enormous. Uh, much bigger than the sweet corn you grow in your garden. But grain crops, wheat, barley, rye, flax, that sort of stuff does not grow 100 kernels per stalk. You plant a wheat kernel and you get maybe 35. So not only does Isaac get a harvest during a drought, he gets a triple harvest, miraculous harvest. In the same year, he planted his crops and he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted for the Lord blessed him. He became a very rich man and his wealth continued to grow and he acquired so many flocks and sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. And finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country. Go somewhere else, he said, for you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away to the Gerar Valley. And when I, there Isaac built an altar and worshiped the Lord. And he set up his camp at that place and his servants dug another well. And one day King Abimelech came from Gerar and said, We can plainly see that the Lord is with you. So we want to enter into a treaty with you. Swear that you will not harm us, just as we have never troubled you. Now look how the Lord has blessed you. Now look how the Lord has blessed you. I believe that if, if us as individuals and us as a church congregation and the church capital C, if we will do as I tell you, which is what the Lord says, during a season of drought, whatever economy crash is happening, if we will obey the Lord and do what he says, first of all, his instructions will make no sense. But if we will obey, we will see miraculous harvest and the world will take notice that not only did that work, it worked way better than it should have. The world will take notice that God has blessed us. If we react to the current conditions and respond to the weather, I mean the economic weather, the military weather, the immigration weather, whatever it is that the issue that you're afraid of, if, you, if we respond in fear, um, we'll do what everybody else is doing. If we're walking with the Lord and doing what he says, we will do things that just don't make sense for the current weather. In drought and famine, do as I tell you and I will bless you. Be where God tells you, doing what God tells you to do. It was against all rational common sense that he would plant a crop at all. And then he gets an unheard of harvest and the world takes notice. In Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon wrote it, but it's the word, it's God speaking to us. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant, and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Solomon says, it might rain, it might not. The tree might fall this way, or it might fall that way. Who knows? If you're making your decisions based on the current weather, you're never going to do anything. 
Whoever watches the wind will not plant and who looks at the clouds will not reap. Don't look. The word of the Lord is don't look at the current conditions. Do what needs done. Buy the farm. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether it is this or that or whether both will do equally well. In Jesus' parable of the talent, it was the guy who was afraid that just buried his money and did nothing with it. The other two guys took a risk, and they invested their money, and they didn't know whether it would work or not, but it did. Here's Solomon saying, just sow your seed in the morning and in the evening, don't let your hands be idle, because you don't know what's going to succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Solomon is telling us, God is telling us, don't look at the current conditions, just get to work. Because you don't know what's going to happen. When we make decisions based on the what ifs, and I realize that all investors and business owners and farmers and, and everybody has to make decisions on what they think the future might be. And Solomon is basically saying, God is telling us, ignore all of that and just do the right thing. Just do what needs done today. Sow your seed in the morning. That's your job. Work your job. Earn your income. Do your work. And at evening, don't let your hands be idle. That doesn't mean let your thumbs fly on your phone. All right. We are the most idle culture in world history. We come home from work and we stare at a screen for hours and then go to sleep. And the express instruction of God is do not be idle in the evenings. That's cooking, that's your house cleaning, that's your house maintenance and your vehicle maintenance, that's you're practicing your musical instrument. That's being, you're painting. Do something besides sit and stare at a screen. Accomplish something with your evenings that is productive and even profitable. Don't let your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that. Do you see that God is promising some of what we do won't work? He's promising that if you invest money here and here and here, some of that won't work. Don't be overly discouraged by it. Every farmer that cuts his hay, some of it gets rained on. And some of it doesn't. If you don't know about hay, rain is bad for hay. <laughs> Talking farmer talk to... Got a couple farmers here. Ignore the current conditions. Just do your work and obey. Faith for the future, hope, regardless of current conditions. That's what it looks like. Buy the farm, Jeremiah. Plant your crops, Isaac. We're going to go to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 1 to 4 says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband says the Lord. This is a, a really sensitive example. I know that God picked here. Um, I know that this is deeply personal for a few women in the room. So I want to be sensitive to that, and I'm certainly not addressing this issue in, in the natural at all. But God picked this example, I think, because it is one of the most painful things in human experience, for a woman that wants to be married or a woman that can't have children and wants to, to not be able to. I think God picked that extremely painful example 
And he says, sing. The instruction is hope. There is no hopeless circumstance. Sing, O barren woman. Burst into song and shout for joy. But God is talking here in Isaiah is speaking to Jerusalem as a city that is constantly referred to as a woman. She's the wife of God, actually. The new Jerusalem is the wife of Jesus. He's speaking to a city, so he's not talking about just natural childlessness. He's talking about spiritual lifelessness. And God says, when everything looks barren and lifeless and there is literally no hope, sing. Burst into song and shout for joy. Because when I do the miracle for you that I am about to do for you, more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. When I show up, God says, when I show up and do for you what I'm going to do for you, your broken life will be better than somebody who had a naturally good situation. Speaking directly to those women, he says, I'll give you more children than those that can naturally bear children. And he tells Jerusalem and he tells us, spiritually, in our souls and spirits, when I take the empty, lifeless area of your life and I bring it to life, there is no hopeless situation. In fact, it is so not hopeless that it will be better than if it just naturally worked for you. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Everybody say, do not hold back. back. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch the tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and the left, and your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. God says, enlarge, stretch, lengthen, strengthen, spread out. Don't hold back. Bill Johnson says, this passage says, build the nursery before the baby is even conceived. Just believe that what is literally impossible is going to happen and prepare for it ahead of time. It starts with singing, praising God, being thankful for what he promises, even when there's no way what he promised can happen. And then start building for what should not be happening. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Don't be afraid. Start building. So God says, always sing, always praise the Lord, always celebrate with thankfulness, shout for joy, even in the most painful present situation because there is no hopeless circumstance. There's always a future. There's always a hope. Even if you feel locked up and under guard, surrounded by the enemy. And the enemy not only is surrounding you, it's camped on your land. (laughs) And there is nothing left. It has been, your life has been stripped clean in that particular area, whatever it is. Even in the most painful present situation, sing, shout for joy, praise the Lord. For a future that God promises you, no matter how impossible that is. Actively prepare for the future that I promise you.
Enlarge your tent. Stretch your cur- tent curtains. That's, that's their home. You know, they live in tents. So God's saying, add on. Make room for what I'm promising you I'm going to give you, even though what I'm telling you I'm going to give you is not possible. Make room for it before it happens. Sing and be thankful. Build. Another way I want to put it is act in the present like the good future that I'm praying for is already here. Act today like the good future that God has promised me and that I'm praying for and that he and I are working out in blood, sweat, and tears. Act today like that future is now. Because that's how God thinks. God came to Abram and changed his name to Abraham. You're the father of many nations. He was in his 90s and had no kids. But God called him by his future. He treated him today like the future that God saw. He comes, shows up to Gideon, the most cowardly man in all of scripture. Shows up to Gideon and his first greeting is, greetings, courageous warrior. Gideon was not a courageous nor a warrior. But that's what God called him because God knew that's what he would become as he continued to obey. So God act, God calls that which is not as though it is to speak our future so that we become that. So uh, what I'm here to tell you this morning is that Isaiah 54 says not only sing and praise the Lord in faith, but God says build. Build for your future that I'm promising you now. Not recklessly, not you telling God, I'm going to build this and you're going to fill it. Not if you build it, they will come. But what, God, what has God promised you? What are you and God working out in blood, sweat, and tears, and crying, and screaming, and pleading? And <laughs> whatever that is, whatever he's promised you, build for that. Act today like in the present, like the future that you envision is true. So God calls those things which are not as though they are, and he treats Abraham and Gideon like his vision of them instead of who they are in the moment. So let's take your mother-in-law or your dad or your sister or your spouse and you have a broken relationship and every time you're together there's tension and headbutting and just take some time and imagine what would it be like if we were restored? How good would Thanksgiving dinner be if we could just get along? And then when you go to Thanksgiving dinner, behave like that. <laughs> Act like the future that you want is today. Treat your mother-in-law or your daughter or your sister like you would treat them if it's restored. Sing, O barren woman. Shout for joy. Stretch out your tent. Build now for the future that you're praying for. Well, if I made more money, I'd be more generous. If you honestly imagine that if you won a million dollars in the lottery, that you would give a third or half of it away, Jesus said that isn't true. But if you honestly imagine that, act like that with 40,000. Well, I can't do that, Mitch. Okay. 
than you wouldn't with a million. Act like the future that you imagine is real today. This is what God is saying in Isaiah 54. It's what God is saying when he tells Jeremiah, buy the farm. It's what God is telling Isaac, plant your crops. Don't look at the weather. Ignore the current conditions and do what I tell you. I promise you it will work. Don't pull any stunts. Don't call it faith by going out and doing what you want to do. Do what I tell you to do. God speaking to us individually and to us as a church. Do what I tell you to do. I promise you it will make no sense in the current economic conditions. But we're going to build a business. We're going to build a building. We're going to invest. You're going to have restoration in your family. You're a courageous warrior. You're a mother of many. Do not hold back. Do not hold back. Do not hold back. No matter what comes at us, in world circumstances or your personal circumstances, do not hold back from obeying God. By the farm. Shout for joy. Amen. Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord of hope. That there is never a hopeless moment in your mind or your heart. You always, you always see salvation and redemption and rescue and restoration. You speak about courage when we feel afraid and you speak about blessing when it looks like all is lost. And you speak about restoration when it looks like our lives have, have just been destroyed. You always have a future and a hope. There's always goodness ahead of us. You told Jeremiah that even though you must judge the wickedness of the Israelites, that, that you would bring them back to their land and you would be their God and they would be your people. You would show kindness and compassion and goodness. And it was true, you did. And you have and you are. Thank you, Lord. There's always hope. There's always a future. And thank you for your instruction that we are to live in hope for the future today. That we stretch out our tents. That we add, that we add on, that we invest, that we sow our crop. Regardless of the current weather. We move forward in faith. Lord, forgive us for cowering, for hunkering down, for digging bunkers instead of attacking. Lord, we declare today that we will be a church of faith and hope. That we will march bravely into tomorrow, remembering that today... You told us to sing. You told us to shout for joy. You told us there is a future and a hope. And the rest of the world may be scared. The rest of the world may be angry. The rest of the world may be in turmoil. But we're going to look to you and do what you tell us. Individually and as a congregation. 
We will sow our crop even if it looks like it's not a good idea. And we will build even though it looks like that might not be a good idea. We will do what you say, Lord. We will go where you tell us to go. Live where you tell us to live. Thank you for hope. Thank you for life. I speak hope in Jesus' name to every mind and every heart in this room. In Jesus' name, I speak hope. Hope. A vision and a future. A good future. A future of change and restoration. In your family, in your finances, in your health. In your children and grandchildren. In your marriage. Hope. In Jesus' name. Live like tomorrow, today. Live today like the tomorrow that you hope for is real.